Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about the impact of graphic design. Today on the show, I have a wide-ranging conversation with the designer, writer, and educator, Rachel Berger. Rachel is currently the chair at the California College of Arts in San Francisco and previously worked as a designer at SY Partners and on Michael Beirut's team at Pentagram. Her writing has appeared in Design Observer, Significant Objects, and Clog. Rachel majored in American Studies during her undergrad at Yale, and this is where that conversation begins. We talk about what those classes were like and what she was studying and thinking about and writing about and how this led to her interest in graphic design. We talk about her responsibilities as the chair of a design program and especially a design program that's in the middle of Silicon Valley and how this role has changed her own thoughts on graphic design. Finally, we talk about balancing administration administration and creativity, encouraging criticality, and how her writing informs her design work. This is truly one of those conversations that could have easily gone on for another hour. There is so much we could talk about, and Rachel, I think you'll see, thinks really deeply about all of this work. So I just really, really enjoyed this one. I think that you will too. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you like the show and want to help with its ongoing production, I hope that you'll consider joining. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode with Rachel Berger. I saw that you uh, went to Yale for your undergrad and, and you you uh, did American mm-hmm. studies. And I kind of want to start there and kind of talk about what that means and what that looks like. I've I've talked to other people who have, uh, you know, majored in American studies, but I don't quite know what that mm-hmm. is. And and so I'm kind of curious, what what were you studying? What were you interested in, you know, when you're 17, 18, 19, uh going to Yale, what, uh, what were your interests? What, what were you kind of wanting to do? Yeah. So it's funny. I think that when I was figuring out what to study and my friends were also figuring it out, I felt like we fell into two camps, people who chose a major that they were interested in and people who choose a major that they thought they had to study, like they felt a sense of duty to study. Mm. And, um, for me, I was selfish and chose something that like, for me had the most interesting classes. Like I would look at the book of listing all the courses and it was always classes that ended up to be being American studies classes that jumped out at me as the most intriguing. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's because American studies is a really broad and kind of mysterious. I don't even know if I would call it a discipline, right? Cause it's like, if you think of everything you know of that yeah. has the word studies appended to it, it probably fits within American studies, right? So like, <laughs> urban studies, film studies, uh, ethnicity, race, and migration studies, African-American studies, gender studies is all American studies, at least at Yale. And I was interested in all of those things. So even though I knew there was no such thing as a job in American studies, I would just go ahead and, and explore it and try it. I guess I have kind of two things there. I think you're exactly right about the the blurriness of that as a discipline. I was just the reason I started with that question. I was just talking to someone the other day about how I've been thinking about 
would I want to get a PhD in art history and, and kind of do some sort of design history focused? And the person I was talking to was like, you know, it might be more interesting to do an American studies program, uh, you know, and focus on some part of design history. That's a little bit more open. You can kind of do it a lot of different things. I was like, yeah, I've, I know people who have done American studies. I don't know what that means. Yeah, um, I mean, and I think that kind of openness makes I sense. I think you should do it. And, you know, to give you a couple examples <laughs> of how it worked for me, like, I was writing papers about like Sassy Magazine or about Mm. like Nirvana song lyrics. Um, My senior thesis thesis was a cultural history of the Adopt-A-Highway program. You know, the Adopt-A-Highway program is basically just a signage system, right? So I was looking at graphic design, but from a this cultural studies perspective. Yeah, I have two. So I have two questions. I want to go back to something you said earlier and then kind of connect it to what you were just saying. You said you were looking through the course catalog, you were looking through the curriculum and there were these, you you saw, you know, all the books that you'd be interested in reading or the, you know, courses, they were all in American studies. What were you interested in? It sounds like there was some visual cultural stuff, but what were, do you remember what those books were? We were like, oh, I want to read this. I want to study. I want to learn more about this. Um, I, I think something that I was interested in was both urban studies and suburban studies, like how the American Mm. landscape came to be shaped the way it was, like why I grew up living on a cul-de-sac outside of, you know, in Portland, Oregon, which, you know, is this theoretically a suburban paradise in a subdivision that used to be a Christmas tree farm. Uh, Why did that happen? Mm. You know, and and what did that mean about the culture of this country and something that is really interesting in the way American studies is structured in terms of your introduction to the discipline is it's structured around cultural formations. Like how did this event that happened Mm. in the 1800s connect to this series of events in during the industrial revolution, which then fueled um, these things that happened during the world wars. And then that showed up on Long Island in terms of the way the GI bill worked. And what does that mean for urban cities today? Like tracing these, mm-hmm. um, narratives through history and through different media, um, which for me was a really powerful way mm-hmm. to think about how things got to be the way they are. Like why, why, when I look around, I see these things in this way. I was just so interested and curious about that. And and so that, you know, that makes sense. I, I, I don't mean to draw too, uh, too clear a line or make these connections too obvious, but I think that the Adopt-A-Highway thesis makes sense, uh, hearing all of that. And I think it's interesting that you talk about that also as a kind of a graphic design thesis or a thesis about signage where did your uh introduction to graphic design come in or or was there a some sort of shift or expanding of interest from not just uh urban design or kind of the the urban environment but also the the surface the the graphic part of it it's just you know what i mean does that that yeah and i've been reflecting on that question in you know preparation for this conversation and i think there's a few different it's funny so i'm i'm gay and something that um is sort of like a joke that we talk about um in my community is like what is your root like what is the moment that you knew that you were mm. gay because my wife and i joke about our root being say that picture that was taken of me in second grade where i was the only girl in pants in my class photo 
It's like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. of course you're mm-hmm. gay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like you're asking me what my root is at, in graphic design. And so it makes me oh, uh, interesting. It makes yeah. me reflect all the way back to distant childhood. And I think one root is that I had a lot of hobbies involving paper. Um, the first being mm. reading. I loved to read. The second being really dorky, which is stamp collecting. And the third, I think, being even more dorky, which was making these like cut and assemble paper models like of Western towns and uh, architectural. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did. Th- I had, And they came in like little yes, books. Almost. They were like Dover books. Um, like, they were super yeah, cheap. I did that, too. Yeah, um, I have. I made one of the Space Needle of like a Crusader castle of the Sagrada Familia. Oh, wow. And I like loved the like slow, you know. I think I had a bone folder even back in the day, you know, like to make scores and the cutting yeah. and the gluing. And it was like this so labor intensive and so absurd, but it was something I love to do. Um, so I think, you know, I, I wasn't connecting, I wasn't a maker of graphics, but I was a collector of little scraps of paper. And I feel like I'm still someone who loves to collect little scraps of paper. Like I look around my studio and there's business cards that have been slipped under our windshield wiper of you know barbers mm. and roofing specialists and auto glass people in oakland because they have just such amazing kind of vernacular design that i love um i think though i didn't really know about design until i got to college um and something that i did in college besides american studies was i was really greedy to take art classes because i hadn't really taken any in high school i was mm. really academically focused And so I became like this classic dilettante who took every intro art class, but never anything beyond that. Okay. So like my first semester of freshman year, I took basic drawing. Um, And I think my, it was taught by this really, really iconic um, professor from the Yale School of Art named Robert Reed, who was extremely demanding, sort of legendary basic drawing class where you were spending 20 hours 30 hours a week working on his projects. And I remember one of his assignments was to pick something, some object that you had ready access to and draw it just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. The thing mm. I chose was this like broken umbrella, but there was a guy in my class who's also named Robert. Okay. And this guy, Robert, I remember he chose to draw a letter A, like he had, I don't know, a piece of old signage or something. Mm. And he was super nice. I think he was a junior. He was drawing this letter A hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And I was, I finally asked him like, why, why are you doing this? And he said, oh, I'm a graphic designer. My name's Rob Giampetro. And I said, oh, what an odd thing to draw. I'm drawing umbrellas, you know? And, and of course I reflect back on, on that and on meeting Rob then, and on kind of being introduced to the obsessive love of letter forms that is so much of graphic design practice as a first semester freshman. That is so funny. Rob was my first interview uh, oh, wow. for this podcast like three years ago. So it's it comes first full circle. You're like episode 151, uh-huh. I think. Uh, I love that that connection there. That's yeah. amazing. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how to ask the question that I'm trying to formulate, but I'm interested in you know seeing him draw this a thinking that this is you know somewhat kind of confusing. Why are you doing this? Uh, hearing the answer, I'm a graphic designer. Um, did that pique your interest? Were you like, well, what is that? What does that mean? Can I do that? What was that kind of, uh, I mean, l- let me, let me ask the question this way. You eventually become a graphic designer. So something, 
something happened there. Do you remember what that was like? Uh, so I, I frankly, I don't think it was the moment that Rob told me he was a graphic okay. designer. I, I think I thought, boy, that's just a bizarre. That is bizarre that that's what this kid right. has chosen yeah. to draw. I, I, ad, I admired his his rigor, but I was concerned for him. I think in that moment. Um, but you know, as I was saying earlier, I, I did poke around in all the different art disciplines that were offered at Yale. So I took, uh, intro sculpture, I took intro photo, and I took an intro Mm -hmm. graphic design class with, um, a professor named Hank Van Assen. Um, and I loved the class. And the only reason I didn't take a second graphic design class is because in the second class you had to start using computers. And I was... I was intimidated Mm. um, by computers, which is just so, it's, it's so embarrassing. It's so goofy to say now, given that the computer is, you know, obviously, you know, the computer is my best friend. Um, But at that time, I didn't have a computer because you could still, it was early enough that like you could use the computer labs. uh, And so I, I didn't quite know what the path was. And I also didn't think I want, I, I wasn't taking art classes because I wanted to be on the computer. I was taking art classes because I wanted to be making things. Did you, were, were there connections or was there overlap in the things you were talking about and writing about in your kind of major American studies classes? And, you know, you mentioned these kind of cultural artifacts that you'd be writing papers about. And then you're taking these art classes where you are, making things, producing things, uh, you know, drawing, painting, sculpture. Was there overlap between those? Or did you kind of, you mentioned earlier that you were just kind of selfish and were wanting to try to do everything. Um, Did that feel kind of split personality when you were doing both of those things? I think initially it did. I think that the type of criticality that is in play in like a in an art classroom is really different from that in Mm -hmm. say uh, an academic seminar, except that my senior thesis project brought a lot of things together. Like it was also a photo project. I was, uh, my research involved Mm. traveling on this like two month road trip and interviewing highway adopters all over the country and photographing them with their adopt a highway sign like at the site that they had adopted uh, Mm. and talking with them about Mm -hmm. why they were involved with the program and learning about their lives and, and backgrounds because the program had is actually has this sort of interesting political and cultural history where people use the signs as a way to communicate messages. Uh, Like for example, the KKK has adopted sections of highway in Missouri that are school busing lines as a way to intimidate people. Uh, Meanwhile, in the Dakotas, an LGBT organization adopted a highway as a way to say, hey, we're here. And that sign was shot Mm. by, Mm. you know, shot up by guns. It was constantly stolen. So they had to keep the sign down and only put it up when they were actually doing a cleanup. And so I interviewed people representing both those groups to learn more about you know, what, what happened. And, and so um, I think that that project really um, brought together my interest in form and my interest in culture. 
I, I think this right here, what you're saying is really the, the core of what I'm interested in talking to you about. And so I don't want to spend all of this conversation just kind of going step by step through your biography, if that's okay. Um, so, I mean, you eventually, you, you, did you go to, did you get your MFA right after undergrad or did you work in between that time or take a break between I that time? I did not. I worked for three years. The first year I worked for the New York City Police Department. And then I spent two years working at an art museum in New Haven. You eventually kind of, you know, went back to graphic design, I guess, and and were able to kind of bring these things together. And I think you kind of talking about the making and the culture, I think, you know, graphic design is such an interesting field where those two things come together. And I'm interested in this background that you had where you were writing these kind of cultural papers you were taking these art classes did do you think that that gives you some uh different or interesting or unique perspective than when you went to study graphic design itself having this whole other line of study beforehand uh, uh, that's an interesting question i think uh my first response is that i think it means that i take graphic design very seriously because i have seen mm its impact on the culture, because that's, right. you know, where I didn't encounter it first as someone making cool stuff. I encountered it as someone seeing uh, what it can do right. um, to a people, you know, in terms of behavior and belief. Um, and that's the reason that I went to graduate school is because, you know, I had spent this time thinking about uh, graphic design from the outside, right? Like as a critic or as someone mm -hmm. who, as a, as someone who was studying its impact, and I and I thought, wow, you know, imagine what I can learn about culture if I actually become someone who's contributing to it. Um, and you know, it's so funny. I just talked to um, Susan Sellers of Two mm -hmm. by Four, um, who kind of did the inverse uh, of you in a way, in that she studied uh, graphic design in undergrad and then got a master's in American Studies. Mm -hmm. Um, and then returned to start a studio and she essentially said the same thing and that, you know, she could have very easily had a career being a teacher, uh, professor, you know, doing writing. Um, but there was something about producing the work also that the kind of like actualizing of it, um, seemed important. Um, um, I, I find that so fascinating. I'm, I'm curious kind of, uh, the impetus to not just be an observer, a critic, uh, a thinker, but to be someone who can actually use these tools to put things out into the world. Um, what was your kind of, uh, I, I'm sorry to use this word, but plan or goal or idea uh, while you were studying graphic design? Did you kind of then want to go and make this stuff to kind of to to use graphic design to do these things in the world? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, maybe a strength and a, um, opportunity at Yale is this lack of discussion of the plan. Right, right. Uh, so it wasn't like people were talking about, yeah, I'm going to take this class so I can get this job with this guy, um, or that there was some there, there, there was no resources around careers, and there was not even really an acknowledgement of the market. Um, mm. and, and like I said, I think that's both a strength and maybe a potential uh, area for, 
con- uh, consideration. Um, yeah, so I I'd think, like to talk I, about that more in a bit, actually. <laughs> that's, that sounds fine. So, you know, I, which is to say, I don't remember having a plan. Um, I think mm-hmm. I thought I would uh, learn how to be a designer and then work in a studio and maybe mm-hmm. eventually have my own studio, maybe um, have teaching be part of my practice. Um, mm. But I always thought I would have a job. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so you, you mentioned that, you know, you thought maybe teaching would be a part of your practice. And I'm I'm a, uh, a fairly new teacher. I've been teaching for five years now. Uh, for like four and a half years, I guess it is, um, as kind of an adjunct, mm-hmm. uh, always thinking that teaching was kind of the, the maybe side piece of my practice. I always kind of thought of myself as a designer first. Um, and over the last, you know, two years have kind of realized that, and I, I think we're similar in that. I was interested in the cultural side of graphic design. I was interested in write, am interested in writing the cultural side, the kind of more critical side, um, realize, and kind of had that split between being a producer, a maker, and then the intellectual side and have come to realize that teaching is the way that all of those things come together for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and for my practice and my interests, they all overlap the clearest and that does not mean to say that it is clear uh, but just the clearest in the classroom uh is that similar for you is that kind of why teaching was interesting for you because that was a way to kind of it seems like it's a way to bring all of those things together for you all of this stuff that you're interested in yeah i think that that's right i so uh, after graduate school i moved to the bay area um eventually started working at a company called sy partners Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that uh, has an office in New York as well and has this uh, interesting mix of design and strategy work and is sort of mm-hmm. um, f- structured on a consulting model. So that meant it's, it was a really intense job, lots of travel, lots of um, sort of client, deep client work. Um, and I felt like I was teaching on the, on the sly, like the, I was sort of stealing hours away to run mm. off to CCA at night, hope that I wouldn't have to travel and mix the ne- miss the next class. Um, but it was right. some of my, you know, some of my favorite time was that these hours that I was whittling out of my job to go and teach. So you were, you were doing both at the same time. You were working as a designer and then you were kind of teaching at night. Um, and now you're the, you know, you're the chair of the program at CCA. Uh, was that a conscious kind of decision to, I'm going to flip this. I'm going to be primarily a, a teacher. Yes, it was this very clear. So I'd been working at um, SY Partners for almost five years and, you know, teaching probably one class a year was what I was able oh, okay. to manage. And then the chair role at CCA came open um, and uh, some folks that I knew there said, "Hey, you know, what if what if you applied? What you know, what would that be like?" And you know, I, I kind of took stock of what I was doing professionally, what my favorite things that I was doing professionally were, and whether I was ready for a new challenge. And I thought, "Gosh, this seems like a pretty cool job." Um, so it was really like I uh, like I applied for that job. Um, so it was very okay. much a deliberate uh, transition. So I didn't realize that you 
basically were hired as the chair. I had, I, I knew you had taught before, but I had I guess I had just assumed that you know you were kind of full time teaching and then became the chair. What was that like uh, going in? You know, from teaching one class a semester to now being chair of the program. You know, immediately like that. Um, you know, people talk a lot about imposter syndrome and whenever <laughs> people use that term, I'm like, no, like, don't do that. You know, you, no one is an imposter, um, mm. that, you know, or at least the people who worry about imposter syndrome are not imposters. Um, mm. that said, mm. I was immediately giving a lot of advice to people about teaching, right? Cause I had this faculty of right. like 40 people who were, coming to me with questions and about my point of view on what they should be teaching, how they should be teaching. And so I sort of quickly had to develop a point of view on how they should be teaching and what they should be teaching. Um, but then when I was teaching myself, I would hear my own voice in my head and think, that's not right. Oh my gosh. Like, how could you have mm. told that to people? That doesn't work at all. And so it yeah. was a funny kind of fractured mindset around needing to show up as an expert for people um, and then putting it in practice and realizing I still had a lot to learn. Right. Right. So you were teaching, uh, I'm not totally familiar how CCA works and I feel like it's kind of different, um, at every school. So is, it sounds like the chair at CCA also is a, uh, full-time teacher teaching classes while directing the program. So the way, uh, it's structured for me as I teach one class a year and then okay. my other full-time duties are um, channeled toward the chair responsibilities. So in a way, my teaching load hasn't changed, right? I, I, it's right. Just what I do right. with the rest of my time has changed. And, and those, I'm going to ask you just like a kind of series of, of really kind of technical practical process questions because I'm something I'm very interested in and, and think about a lot is the uh kind of leadership models of higher education design programs mm -hmm. I guess basically um so the chair responsibilities for you I imagine are um you know everything from the administrative hiring faculty budgets, you know, bringing in guest lectures and things like that, but also more, you know, all the way to the other side of kind of strategy things of here's what this program is. Here's what we want to do. Uh, here's what we want to kind of give to students. Uh, here's what we want students to kind of take away from this program. Here's how we're connected to the larger community, the local community around us. Are you interested in all of those things? You know, are you interested in that kind of full administrative budget stuff and the big picture? Here's what we are as a program. Yes. It's why I like my job. I think that um, I see people who are in this role who are, who are, who don't, who aren't happy. You see grumpy chairs, you know? And, <laughs> mm -hmm. and when I took this job, I, I thought if, if, I, if you get grumpy, you need to stop because it's, it's too privileged a role to waste time being grumpy in. But in order to not be grumpy, right. you do have to be into some kind of, you know, nerdy stuff. And yeah, I, I, I <laughs> yeah. think something that I benefit from is thinking of this job as also part of my design practice. 
I think right, of right. the chair duties as acts of design. I'm asking this question 100% selfishly because it's something that I am trying to figure out. And obviously, I am not a director of a program or a chair of a program. I've talked to a bunch of directors and deans. Um, the way my work has gone, I'm doing a lot more of that administrative stuff that I had never done before. And I found that, hey, I actually really like this also. Mm -hmm. uh, but the the challenge that I've had um, that I'm still trying to figure out, and I don't totally like the word balance, um, but I, I can't think of a better word for it, of not letting the small stuff get in the way of the big stuff. You know, so when I have to think about something that's like strategy or or even like creative things like putting together a curriculum for a class or writing a lecture even or, you know, putting together a presentation or something like that, the stuff that I need that mental energy for, I'm also thinking, well, I have to respond to these emails. I have to get these meetings on the calendar. I have to, you know, and I don't know how to how to kind of like, again, I, this isn't the right word, but balance those. So. Yep. the one doesn't get in the way of the other. How do you okay. kind of deal with that or think about that? Okay, so I've got some I've got some ideas for you, Jarrett. First, okay, I um, love it. something to I'm just going to turn this into a career advice podcast. Oh, baby, I see, I, I give it. I'm, oh, I've got it. I'm going to give you advice, even though I don't really know. So, okay, this is perfect. So, think about the distinction between the urgent and the important. Okay, so the urgent mm. is like that email that is blowing up your inbox that you feel like you need to respond to. And then the important is that thing you need to write that's mm -hmm. going to take real deep thinking. And we have this problem where the urgent is always blocking out the important, you know, like there's right. always yeah. that email. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with this mythical figure of the Hydra. A Hydra is like this thing where you cut off its head and oh. two heads grow in its place. And so oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. however hard you fight against the Hydra, like it just gets worse. And email is like that. Like the second <laughs> yeah. you respond to an email, like two more come back. And so the better right. you are at email, the worse you are at everything else. Um, which isn't to say don't respond to email, but just be careful how good you are with email because people will realize that like, oh, this guy's going to write back to me. So I'm going to ask him something that mm. he shouldn't be answering, but I know he'll write back. Like I do that to people because yeah. people take advantage of that. So take care with how good you are with email is one thing. Oh, the next I love is, that. Yeah. For me in this job, this job could literally be all email. Like if right. you let I'm, it, I doesn't surprise me. If you let it, you could just live inside your inbox forever. Right. And right. so you have to decide to not let like the path of least resistance is living inside your inbox. And so you have to mm. say I will spend an hour or two hours or whatever, like doing the emails. And then I will not, I will spend an hour or two hours right. doing the writing and you just shut it. You just shut it off. However you can yeah, is one thing. And then the other way I think about balance is how I, how I balance my, my academic, like my, my responsibilities in the school versus my own practice. And mm, so right. something that's been really valuable for me in terms of my own practice is kind of thinking about the things that I work on as like three different burners on a stove, right? And one of the burners mm. is something that I'm writing. And one of the burners is mm -hmm. something that I'm getting paid to do that's not part of my CCA work. 
And then the third burner is something that I'm making that I'm just making because it's something I want to make some weird thing. And I, Right. No matter what, I want to know what I'm doing in each of those three areas at any given time. It's not like all three burners are all the way lit up all the time, but that there's something yeah. cooking on every burner. That, oh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to let this become the rest of the conversation because I totally could, but you are totally hitting me right at the stuff that I'm trying to figure out right now because that that is exactly my uh, kind of personal and I guess professional challenge right now is keeping all of those burners lit at the levels that they need to be when they need to be. Because I, I like I said earlier, I think we're similar in that regard and that I do. I have, I have like the professional stuff. I have the projects that I'm just kind of doing on my own. I have the kind of writing and thinking stuff. I have the teaching. And it's not just the balance between the email and the thinking. It's also the balance between I have to prepare a class, but I'm also making this other thing that might not go anywhere. That's just for me. And I kind of want to work on that more right now uh, and trying to figure out that. I mean, it's a time management question, I guess, uh, in the end, but I th- I, that's such a great metaphor. Oh, gosh. And, and I think that uh, my wife would kill me if I didn't also remind you, since you have a family and I have a family that like <laughs> yeah. the only people that actually love you are your family. Right, right. So you... <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they have to Uh, (laughs) get the love first. Yeah. 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 You, yes. I, and I want to like flip to the complete opposite side of this question though, also of not just kind of the, the, the tactical, the, how you actually do the work, but actually what that work looks like. Um, or kind of where where you see it going. And so I'm really interested in how you think about the CCA program. What are your goals for that that program and, and the the ways that you kind of see that moving forward into the future? It's really interesting to be in San Francisco in this time, in this field. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I started working full-time at CCA in 2014. Um, And I feel so fortunate that the economy has been so robust in this time, because that means there's jobs for our students. um, There's a lot of energy around design here in the Bay, um, which I think is is really exciting and really fortunate in a lot of ways, because I feel like I can responsibly say, we're going to deliver this education to you that has this price tag, and you will have opportunities to, uh, you know, Mm. get a great job. Um, That said, it's also a really complicated culture and context for a school, because the industry that is booming here is the technology industry. And it is a very noisy industry that can drown out a lot of critical thinking, a lot of other types of practice. And for example, I will get pretty clear feedback from folks in tech about what we should be optimizing our students for, like what Mm. tools they would like us to be teaching so that our graduates can, you know, seamlessly transition into product design jobs at Take Your Pick, you know, uh, any number of companies. And they have a really strong point of view and also potentially a really uh, persuasive one, given where resources are flowing. 
Um, but from my perspective, it would be irresponsible to be thinking about design education in that way, um, because mm-hmm. who knows what the opportunity is going to be 10 years down the road. And there are lots of much cheaper ways to get skills if all you want to do is skill up. So what is the value proposition of a design education? It needs to be around much more than skills. So, you know, I think that um, it's been uh, a really amazing time to be uh, teaching graphic design and teaching design and thinking about the future of design education in the Bay Area. And it's also been a tricky time given the reality of the economy being so robust, but so focused on the technology industry. Um, Mm. And, you know, there are certain things that industry wants us to offer our students. There are things that we think our students would benefit from. Um, And then there are things that the students want. So one of the biggest surprises for me uh, when I came in as chair, you know, I thought it it would be really easy to start offering workshops um, in areas that the students wanted to learn skills, you know, curriculum change takes longer. Let's place Mm. some small bets on some new skills. And so I sent a survey to the students saying, hey, what would you like to have a workshop on? Assuming I'd get back things like Python and Raspberry Pi and P5 (laughs) and prototyping. And instead I got back calligraphy, bookbinding, lettering. And I was like, what? You know, it was the first moment where the students had really surprised me. And look, I like it when I'm surprised because it means some assumption I didn't know I had is being challenged. But boy, what was I supposed to do with that? You know, like here we are Mm -hmm. in the heart of the future, theoretically, and all Mm -hmm. the students Mm want to do is go backward in time. That actually really surprised me. I worked in Silicon Valley for a bit uh, years ago uh, and my experience, which, you know, I will admit was a, a, a limited experience was that uh, San Francisco was, was like very much a, a industry town. Um, and I, I know that I was like part of the industry. And so it could just be the people that I was associated with and talking to. But, it, you know, I, I remember standing in lines at coffee shops and hearing people talk about the apps that they were working on and stuff. And it was, you know, admittedly, one of the reasons why I felt like I had to leave San Francisco. Um, but my assumption was that the students who would go to CCA might also be like that. And so it's really interesting to hear uh, the opposite. I, I, I think that what I've observed in the Bay Area, which I find fascinating, is that there is this split personality. Like there is mm-hmm. this uh, you know obsession with technology and uh disruption and the future but there's also this obsession with craft and this love of Mm. hand lettering and sign painting and the muralist tradition and graffiti and book arts and zines um you know and then there's like not very much in between in this strange way and i think cca has a has a history as a craft school it was um, founded as through the arts and crafts movement and has this rich legacy mm. of book arts, of folks who are into fine typography and sort of a lot of folks from Cranbrook who are these postmodernist image makers. And right. so CCA sits as this kind of bastion of craft, even if it's in this context of <coughs> tech. And so for me, it's been really, really interesting figuring out ways to support that legacy of craft while, you know, pushing toward the future to make sure our students are learning um, skills 
that are going to make them relevant in the job market and that they're learning things that just help them fall in love with making and that they're learning criticality. How, how do you do that? Um, uh, you know, I, that's a question that I ask people all the time on the podcast. It's something I think about literally every day because I'm I'm one of those teachers that's much more interested in the uh, the criticality in the making just to make in experimenting and trying new things. Um, I, I'm not as interested in my students producing like really perfectly mocked up things that will go nice in their portfolio. Um, and I always have students that kind of push up against that and I don't blame them and I don't necessarily think that they're wrong because they are paying a lot of money mm-hmm. to be there and they are hoping that this will lead to a job. Mm-hmm. And I do feel a little bit of a responsibility to help them there also. But I I, I struggle with how to connect all of those things because it sometimes can seem like they can be opposed. And I imagine in a Silicon Valley context, that could feel even you know, even heightened a little bit. How do you think about that? It kind of goes back to your Yale experience also of the kind of no talk about about jobs, actually. Yeah. I mean, so one example that comes to mind is around how we've approached programming. So like mm. I had a couple students come to me and say, hey, we, we really want to do a screening of this documentary called Design Disruptors. I don't know if you've seen <laughs> this. Um, but I, it was, No, I don't know what this is. It was commissioned by a company called Envision, and Envision makes oh, prototyping software. I do know this. Yeah. <laughs> so design disruptors. Yeah, yeah. I never saw it, but I know what this the, is. Yeah. It's like in a world where technology is the greatest, design is suddenly being awesome too. We will change the world. Mm-hmm. Boom. And it's like this 75 minute propaganda piece about how awesome the tech industry is, basically. But the Mm. students thought it looked cool and they were enamored of it and excited about it. And they'd even already reached out to Envision to to get a license to screen it like they were. And and I love when students are, you know, taking initiative and eager to do something. Yeah. And so I said, yes. And how can we contextualize this in a way that helps people to think more deeply about what this message is? So. I asked the students if they had seen um, Jennifer Daniel's Creative Mornings. Jennifer, so Jennifer Daniel mm. is a designer who was at the New York Times. She's now at Google. She's very. Um, she does the emoji. She works on the emoji team. talk, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I saw her give a talk on that a couple of years ago. Yes, or sh- sorry, she leads the emoji work, but she's also a very provocative yeah. voice mm-hmm. um, in design, and she had given a Creative Mornings talk. That was basically a 45-minute takedown of design disruptors, like Mm. sort of a scene-by-scene critique of how absurd that film was. So I said, why don't we have a double header? Let's show both. And then afterwards, let's have a facilitated discussion about what we've seen so we can figure out where we stand having heard a debate around these issues rather than just swallowing one side of them. Um, And I think when we framed it that way, it became a much more interesting opportunity for the students to actually dig in a little bit and, and try out their point of view on what this meant and who, who they could be in this context. And then I think in terms of uh, 
curriculum to your question, like one area where we've done a lot of work that I'm really proud of is in our interactive classes. Um, Mm. When I came in, so all of our students sort of have two so-called interactive design classes that they're required to take as part of their curriculum. And when I came in, like one of those classes was largely dedicated to how to code a bulletproof responsive website, like how to make it work on tablet, on mobile, on desktop. And the students were so proud of what they had done, but they weren't making sites that were like at all nice or interesting. They were just making sites that happened to work across platforms. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And for me, that is not the point of school. Like, even if your site only works like on a Tuesday morning in Chrome, (laughs) but it looks amazing and you can document it and it does something in the browser that you have not seen done before, that is more valuable than a site that never Mm. breaks, but doesn't have anything to say. Uh, Oh, right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, hopefully if you can be creative in the browser you're going to be able to partner with people who can make sure your idea works across browsers or something like that right and so we um laurel schwulst who's a new york based yeah um, yeah yeah. i've had her on the podcast oh great so laurel came in and spent a semester with us helping us think through a new approach to that curriculum um mindy sue was also on our faculty Mm -hmm. for a couple years picking up where laurel left off um, Chris Hamamoto also, you know, is with us full time now, and he's leading that curriculum. So it's, I guess, folks who understand how to be creative in the browser, and how to help students feel brave in the browser. So they're still learning coding right. skills, but they're learning how to say something fresh in that environment. And so I think they're still going to be going to getting great jobs but they're also going to be bringing a point of view that will keep them relevant longer than if they just had some basic coding skills. Right. Right. So the skill, the practical skills are almost presented in a way to be uh, in service of something bigger instead of just here are the skills that you need to know. Totally. <laughs> you know, here's how to code a bullet or a, a, a responsive website. Um, but it's, here's how to work in the browser so you can say something, so you can do something. That's interesting. I like that. I'm interested in how teaching and how being in the position that you are in now, um, does that change how you think of A, your own work and your own practice outside of, of teaching, but then also of graphic design in general? Does, does being a, uh, someone who's kind of working with students and thinking about this curriculum actually change how you think about what this profession or this discipline is? Uh, totally, of course. Um, so something that I realized, I think a couple years ago, so I teach um, type two at CCA. It's like a book design mm. class. And I had used for years as an example, Chip Kids cover for Jurassic Park as an example oh, of yeah. an iconic book cover. And then I think it was two years ago, I, you know, showed them the book cover, had them watch his TED talk. And then I paused because I was getting totally blank expressions from my students. And I was like, do you guys know what Jurassic Park is? And they were like, no, literally not a single one of them had ever, ever heard of Jurassic Park, even though there's been like eight movies at this point and a theme park and toys and whatever, the book, nothing. Yeah. And so I had this moment where I was like, oh my goodness, like, a book that I 
would think everyone would have heard of, they haven't heard of. That probably means they don't know who Tom Cruise is. That might mean they don't know who, I don't know, John Kerry is or any number of people yeah. who I think are yeah. super famous are completely irrelevant yeah. to them. And not only does that mean I don't know, they don't know what I know, it probably means that they have all sorts of celebrities and books in their minds that I've never heard of, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. like they don't know what an actor is. They just know about different actors from Tom Cruise or or any number right. of other things. And, you know, I thought, my gosh, you know, if I were looking at this from the outside, I would assume that a 20-year-old is more relevant to culture than a 40-year-old. So I better learn mm-hmm. about what they know about. And I also better make sure I know why I'm telling them about Jurassic Park if they don't already know about it. Like it has to really right. be valuable as an example. And I have to be able to back it up. <laughs> and so I guess I think of teaching as a much, much more of an exchange than I used to. Like mm-hmm. teach me what you mm-hmm. know and I'll teach you what I know so that we can both be smarter um, and know more about the world and the way the world is going. Um, I also, you know, our student population is very diverse. And so I try to understand much more about where these students are coming from in terms of their own mm. cultural references, mm-hmm. because the aesthetics that I'm um, pushing them toward m- m- might be just yeah. fundamentally yeah. at odds with the aesthetics yeah. that are native to them. That, that was a big one for me when I started teaching also of, of just the the kind of cultural baggage i guess that comes with aesthetics um i'm embarrassed to admit i hadn't thought about much until i started teaching people from all around the world and uh it's probably like the best thing that i've learned from teaching is is kind of opening up that the aesthetic possibilities i think that's great i know it's i mean it's like as if you'd never been to a restaurant besides the TGI yeah. Fridays, and then you learn about dumplings. And you're like, oh my yeah. God, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I had a I had an experience like your Jurassic Park one, which I actually think your Jurassic Park experience is more shocking than mine. Um, a couple years ago, I taught a uh, publication design class where they basically, the whole semester, they uh, conceive of and design an entire magazine. Um, and it was a class that had been taught at this school for years before. And the faculty member who had taught it for many years had left and I came in and at the very last minute and kind of just used that faculty member's uh syllabus that first semester and the students were just like producing weird stuff like like it didn't make sense weird like not in Hmm. like oh cool you're trying something new it's just like something's not lining up here something doesn't make sense and like five weeks in I was like wait a minute um who here subscribes to a magazine, any mm-hmm. magazine? No hands went up. Right. Uh, nobody in the class read magazines. And so this thing that I thought was, you know, like Jurassic Park, oh, everybody knows what a magazine is. They knew what a magazine was, but they had no sense of of uh, how it's structured or what goes in it or why it's structured this way. Oh. Uh, and so we kind of, we like started over and we're like, okay. Um, and then over the years, I've been able to kind of adjust that class to, you know, kind of fit their interests more and bring in more kind of digital components and think about content across uh, different types of formats. Um, but that was like, a, oh, wow, I have no idea what to do here because I'm teaching something that they, A, don't know anything about, but also B, 
don't really care about. I know, but it's so great because like now they're into magazines again. Like things keep changing, like the Frank Ocean stuff. And like we thought with our publication design class, when I first started, we were like, oh, what they need to do is learn how to make an an, an iPad right. magazine. And then it's like, oh my gosh, right. turns out that's the worst idea ever. Like iPad magazines suck, yeah. but like magazines are back. Yeah. So it's, I love that it's just going to keep changing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. And it was the same thing where it's, the, the school was like, uh, oh, well, let's do like digital magazines. And InDesign has this like convert to digital feature. I was like, I don't think that's <laughs> what we should be <laughs> what we should be teaching them here. Um, I, mean, I want to go back quickly to kind of the beginning of the conversation as we, we head into the end. Uh, and when you were an undergrad, you talked about you were writing papers about, uh, about Nirvana and about the, you know, the Adopt a Highway signs uh and writing which is something we haven't really talked about that much but is a a core part of your practice and you have continued to write um you know your your entire career and i'm interested in how your writing practice or or you know maybe even your process if we want to get that technical about it how how the act of writing for you is different and or similar to the act of designing? How do those kind of relate and talk to each other? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, it's it's a really good question. And despite being a fairly cerebral person, I haven't thought that much about it. Um, (laughs) I, I, I do think that writing is as much a part of my practice as design like, mm-hmm. yeah. it's, you know, if it's a self-initiated project, it, it usually starts with a question. Um, and then sometimes for me, uh, the right way to answer that question is by writing. And sometimes the mm-hmm. right way to answer that question is by making a piece of design. Uh, and sometimes the right way is by giving a talk or by planning a gathering or a workshop mm-hmm. or putting together an exhibition. Like, uh, I feel really fortunate to have all these different tools or methods, writing being one of them. You know, for you, I guess, you know, you kind of have these ideas or these thoughts or these questions or things you want to kind of explore. Sometimes writing is the way to do that. Sometimes design is the way to do that. And it kind of all, all depends. Sometimes it's both. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of, you know, whatever medium format process is best for the questions that you're asking. Yeah. I mean, to give an example, so I've been on sabbatical this fall and um, the project that I proposed for my sabbatical had to do with virtual reality hardware, in particular, Mm. um, this um, phenomenon where actually both VR software, like the development platforms and the hardware seems really optimized for shooting. Like when Mm. you are developing in, uh, in the Unreal Engine the default artboard is a first person shooter perspective. And you have to actually undo a lot of stuff if you want to do something besides develop a shooting game. Mm. And the, hmm. the form of the hardware, like in terms of the hand controllers, is really around this sort of trigger format that's also best for shooting. Like, I don't know if you've used VR, but it's much harder to like really feel like you're picking something up in oh, a way yeah, that yeah, feels yeah. authentic yeah. compared to shooting something. It feels great to shoot stuff. It feels really awkward to pick stuff up. Hmm. Uh, and I was really disturbed by that and curious about that 
So I decided to propose to learn about why the form was that way and to propose alternative formats that would encourage other kinds of behaviors. Um, mm. So it was a very open, you know, self-initiated yeah. grief. Could take any number of forms in terms of what I actually made. Um, and the things that I have made or are finishing up as part of that research, the first was um, I reached out to a museum in Oakland that is like a video game museum because I, I know that mm. probably the format of VR hardware is influenced by game hardware. And they had this huge mm -hmm. collection sort of from the very beginning of video games of all these uh, you know, controllers and consoles. And I asked if I could curate an exhibition of strange controllers um, just so mm -hmm. I could learn about sort of unorthodox formats. And they were like, sure. And so part of the summer was around learning about their collection, researching the controllers and putting together a show of some of the weird ones, like the Nintendo Power oh, Glove cool. is an example yeah. of one of yeah, the yeah, yeah. other things like that. Um, so that was, you know, that research took the form of working with an archive and then creating an exhibition. And, you know, it was also, it was not only curating the exhibition, but designing the panels and writing the text and, you know, building right, the structure right, for right. All, sort of all these different parts. Um, and then I ended up becoming particularly interested in the Microsoft Xbox controller. And I should say, I'm not a game, a gamer by any means. So I, again, feel like a bit of an imposter, but um, <laughs> something that I learned is that the Xbox controller is being used and has been used for years by the United States military in battle equipment. So they'll huh. take an off-the-shelf Xbox controller and use it to pilot a nuclear submarine, for example. What? I oh, know, right? Because yeah. okay. soldiers know how to use them, and they only cost 40 bucks. Huh. Um, so practically speaking, it seems like a great idea. Um, you know, needless to say, I found it quite disturbing that that's happening. So yeah. I, you know, proposed a, a, a paper to the... Uh, upcoming an upcoming design conference about this subject. So I'm currently writing a paper for that conference that's about mm -hmm. this blurring of the line between tools and weapons and yeah. what that means. And then meanwhile, I'm gonna I'm also working on creating this uh, piece of discursive design responding to this issue by casting an Xbox controller in lead um, mm. as a way to. I guess, call attention to the way the controllers are being used in the military. Lead is what yeah. bullets are made out of. Lead is extremely heavy. Lead is extremely toxic. So taking a toy, the form of a toy, but then right. rendering it in this other substrate will, I think, bring new meaning to it. Oh, that's so interesting. I had, I'm like you, I don't know anything about games. I've never had a gaming console in my life. Um, <laughs> And all of that sounds so interesting to me. I, I, I look forward to that paper. Um, my last question is, uh, this is a question that I, I used to end all of these conversations, but as I was um, researching you, I found an old piece that you had posted on Medium of kind of summer reading recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, and I always end these conversations kind of asking what people are reading right now. Um, and I love those recommendations. I had read... Um, uh, the sellout and a visit to the goon squad that you recommended. Uh, those oh, are two nice. books that I love also. Uh, the other two I, I was not familiar with. So I've added those to the list, but I'm curious, what are you reading right now? Or, or what have you read recently that you've really liked? Um, oh man, that's such a good question. I, I read, uh, can I, let me just, I have a list. 
that I want to go for it. Um, reference. Let's see. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's hard because I read a like, okay. So basically my wife reads like four times as many books as I do. And then I read every fourth book that she like highly recommends because she's oh, interesting. an amazing, okay. and most of it is fiction. Um, so I okay. read a lot of contemporary fiction, like, um, I don't know, my mom got me The Dutch House by Ann Patchett and this like Gentleman in Moscow book that like all the book clubs are reading, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which were really great winter break reads, kind of tore through them. Um, in terms okay. of nice. my research right now, I'm reading a book called Joystick Soldiers, which is about... Mm. Um, the relationship between the military and video games. It's um, my research for the um, mm -hmm. Xbox controller project. I'm also reading a book of essays called Blank Sign Book by Anne Leslie Seltzer. We have a really great mm. um, bookstore and small publisher in Oakland called Wolfman Books. Um, and this is like a Wolfman okay. Books project. So I was excited to pick that up. Um, I mean... The Jenny O'Dell book is on my nightstand. I know you read it, I think, oh, for a previous yeah. um, yep. interview. And I think she's really, really smart. Gia Tolentino is also amazing. I don't know if you've read her writing, but... that I've read her writing. Her Trick Mirror is sitting next to my bed. Uh, it's probably the next book I'll read. Yeah, Trick Mirror is amazing. I think also... she. I'm thinking of her because she had a piece on the New Yorker Online recently on Instagram face, which I thought was really, really great. Oh, I missed that. Okay. Um, it's sort of about this idea that like everyone's face is merging into this Kim Kardashian face because of Instagram and huh. um, plastic surgery uh, in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, I think like to that point of the summer reading piece, like I really, really love it when my students or my colleagues are reading books that are not about design yeah because yeah. i think that oh like oh over the uh, a couple months ago i read this really i did a like a i did a review for like a manuscript for bloomsbury and sometimes they'll just pay you in books so i they sent me like a oh, bunch yeah. of books um one of them was this really great graphic novel ah okay good talk have you heard of good talk that sounds familiar. Anyway, it's a graphic novel by Mira Jacob. It was so great. Um, yeah, also two books by Madeline Miller, Song of Achilles and Circe. Sorry, Madeline Miller. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. These two books that are like reimaginings of, you know, figures from Greek mythology. One yeah. is about Achilles yeah. and Patroclus. The other one is about Circe. And they were both like not super – somehow – middle brow enough that I wasn't feeling like I was having to read Homer, but highbrow right. enough that they were really like beautiful and well-crafted. So yeah, I think those, those are some books that I'm reading recently. And I just think it's so great when students and designers read fiction and don't yeah. just read mm, design blogs. Yes. I, that is such a great way to, to wrap up this conversation because I feel like that that's been that's exactly how I feel and I, f I think you know 10 years ago everything I read was design 
uh, related. And I don't mean to say that I don't read any design stuff now, obviously, the you know, research and teaching and stuff. Um, but the amount of fiction that I've read over the last, you know, five years has just increased dramatically. And I couldn't be happier about it. Uh, and so I, I, I agree with you completely. I, I, I love that. I think it's a, um, a nice message to kind of, uh, to wrap up with and to kind of, to, to close out the conversation. This was so fun for me. This was such an interesting conversation. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. My pleasure. This episode was recorded on January 10th, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.